Senator Sanders, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So your book is called It's OK to be Angry About Capitalism. And for me, the question is, well, how angry? Is it blowing up an oil pipeline angry or voting for a slightly better candidate angry? It's very, very angry because the future of democracy is at stake, the future of the planet is at stake, the future of the ability of working people to have a decent life is at stake. But we got to be smart. And we got to figure out how can we be effective in taking on people with enormous power. So the book focuses a lot on oligarchs. All right, what does that mean? It means that in the world today, the top 1% owns more wealth than the bottom 99%. In my country, richest country on earth, the United States, three people own more wealth than the bottom half of American society. But their power is not just money, it's how they use money. They own much of the media, right? In terms of American politics, if you are a billionaire, you can now spend as much money as you want, hundreds of millions of dollars, to defeat Bernie Sanders, to support some right-wing candidate. So what you're seeing now is democracy, in quotes, being owned by big money. You're seeing more concentration of ownership. Many of the large companies you have here, we have in the United States, they're all over the world, controlled by a very few people. And then with artificial intelligence coming and robotics coming, what do we do about that? Who's going to benefit from all that? So the challenge that we face, in my view, how do we bring people together, country by country and internationally, to tell the oligarchs that this world belongs to all of us, not just a few people? That's the challenge that we have. Ain't easy, believe me. In the book, you give the example of a criminal who walks into a shop and he shoots the clerk behind the counter and the very clear societal repercussions for that. Right. He'll probably lose his job. He'll probably go to jail. Lose his job, yeah. Well, <laughs> he'll lose his, he will go to jail. He yes. will go to jail. Whereas for oligarchs who profit off the misery of working class people, for fossil fuel CEOs, for arms manufacturers, there's no such repercussions. Do you think, deep down, do you feel like these are people who should really be in prison? The answer is yes and no. The answer is they're not breaking the law. And you know why? Because they write the law. All right? But from a moral perspective, what do we do? You don't, not a lot of people know this, but the fossil fuel industry knew 70 years ago that carbon emissions were going to warm the planet and cause massive destruction. And you know what they did about that? They lied. They formed organizations, spent millions of dollars trying to hide that reality. Right now, right now, you have pharmaceutical companies that have products that cost a few cents to produce, a drug that costs a few cents to produce. There are poor children all over the world who are dying because they don't have that. And they got it. They say, you can't afford the price. We're charging you. You're going to die. It's all legal. All right. So what we have to do is change a system which allows murder to be legal and create a world in which, and we can do that uh, with a very different value system. In the United States, there is a definition of freedom, which defines freedom as the freedom to profit, the freedom to be an entrepreneur, the freedom from state interference. Does that mean that lack of healthcare, lack of uh, corporate regulation, that's the price you have to pay for freedom? No, of course it's not. And, and you, what does freedom mean? That's a great question, all right? If I'm sleeping out on the street, am I free? If I'm a worker forced to go to work at a job that I hate and I'm earning starvation wages, am I free? 
If I'm living in America and my kid gets sick and can't afford healthcare, and we have about 60,000 people a year die in the United States because they don't get healthcare when they should, am I free? What does freedom mean? If I go to my job and I have nothing to say about my job, I'm your boss and I'm telling you what to do eight hours, 10 hours a day, you free? So we really have to be thinking about what the word freedom means and what the word democracy means. And in my view, and we touch on that quite a bit in the book, when we talk about democracy and when we talk about human rights, we're also talking about economic rights. You have the right to earn a decent standard of living. You have a right for decent housing, decent healthcare, decent educational opportunity. Now people say, well, that's utopian. We can't afford to do that. You know what? We can't afford to do that. But we can't afford to do that when three people in America own more wealth than the bottom half of American society. Now, we don't talk about those issues in America. I doubt you talk about it very much in the UK, do you? Is that an issue? Well, in Navarre media, we do, you will but talk the about BBC, it. All right. no. All right. But those are the issues that we have to talk about. Is it utopian to think that in the world right now, we can do a lot better than having 1% owning more wealth than the bottom 90%? I think we can. You write a lot about the importance of driving up trade union membership yes. and that that has been a real core part of your campaign uh, policies as well. Why is it so important to drive up trade union membership? Is it just so that workers can get a better deal on pay and conditions or does it change how politics functions as well? It's that and even more. All right. Obviously, when workers stand together and we're seeing this more and more, in the United States. Workers are getting sick and tired of corporate greed. We've seen great organizational efforts on the part of the Teamsters, United Automobile Workers, nurses, people all over the country standing up and fighting work. So why is it important? First of all, it's important that you get decent wages and decent benefits, right? Also important that you have political power. When workers stand together and a candidate has to go before those workers who are united and say, you know what, you're not getting our support. You want our endorsement? Great, you're going to have to do A, B, C, and D. That's important. But I'll tell you what else is important. Many people in the United States, and I know it's not any different here, they feel really alienated. They don't feel they have any power, any influence. But when you're standing with your brothers and sisters together in struggle, and you know what you're fighting for, you become more of a human being. And I'll tell you, if I may, can I tell you a brief story? Mm -hmm. Uh, I got involved, my office got involved in a strike in New Brunswick, New Jersey with, I think it was 1,500 nurses. You want to hear this? You know what these nurses were on strike for? First time they've ever been on strike in there. You think they were on strike for higher wages? They weren't. Better working conditions? Yeah. What they were on strike for is to demand better what they call nurse-patient ratios. These nurses came to my office and they were crying. They could not do the work they were trained and wanted to do. They could not take adequate care of their patients. They went on strike, lost pay, to fight for their patients. And in doing that, they came together. And it was, I think, important for them to stand together. So being a part of a, a good trade union is transformative for the individual as well. Margaret Thatcher very famously said, economics is the method, the object is to change the soul. Do you think that being in a trade union is good for the soul? I think it is very, very good. Look. I believe solidarity. No, it's worker solidarity. You and I are in a union together. We're fighting, and that's important. It's the solidarity of all working people together, to stand together to fight for a better world. And ideally, we have to bring people all over the world together. You know, this is not a new idea. So people have been talking about for a couple of hundred years. There was once a time uh, before World War I, as you may recall. 
No, you don't recall. Yeah. You weren't quite alive. Then. <laughs> it's gonna be like, Senator, how old do you think I am? <laughs> Where workers, workers in France, workers in Germany, workers in the UK. You know what they said? We're not gonna go to war against each other. We're not gonna kill each other. We're all workers. Why are we gonna do that to make the rich richer? What a profound statement. And we need to rekindle that international solidarity. And uh, to me, so that's what solidarity in a profound sense is about. And when we do that, we become stronger and more human, I think, as well. Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, made a proposition that AI is going to upend the American labor market so profoundly that American workers should have shares in these companies so they're not locked out of the enrichment of technological change. Do you think that strategically, leftists, trade unions, self-organized workers should align with sections of elites or should it just be a, an all-out uh, adversarial uh, assault on elite well, I think it's, it's a basic political struggle. AI is going to transform the economy. Who makes the decisions, whether you have a job or not? But you sit there and say, hey, guess what? A machine came, took your place. Have a nice day. You're gone. Really? What, interesting enough, I'm chairman of a committee called the Health Education Labor Committee. We will be holding a hearing uh, within a month or two on a 32-hour work week for the United States. Now, why are we doing that? The point is to show that AI is not in itself a bad thing. It's who benefits, who loses. If AI is going to increase worker productivity, should it just be the bosses and the corporations who make out, or should workers benefit? among other things, by seeing a reduction in their work week. So AI is a profound development, which has the opportunity, I think, the chance to improve life, work, reduce the work week, uh, have a significant increase in lowering poverty rates all over the world. We have got to control what happens, and not just a handful of people on top. You lay out in the book the series of crises, catastrophic crises we're facing as a species, climate change, food instability, uh, the emergence of AI, what that means for the labor market, polarization, war back on the European continent. The methods of change that you talk about, community organizing, trade union struggles, elections, this can feel very slow in the face of the urgency of these crises. Yes. So how do you... How do you make sense of that, the urgency of the crises and the, the speed of political change? That's a very good question, and I wish I had a magic lens. I don't. You're right. If we don't get a handle on fossil fuel emissions, the planet that our kids and grandchildren will be experiencing will be increasingly uninhabitable and unhealthy. We've got to move urgently, urgently. So I don't think there's one magical answer. I mean, I think when people go to the street and protest, it's exactly right. But I think you cannot ignore the political process as well. Right now, what I have to deal with starting, you know, as soon as I get back is how do I make sure that Donald Trump does not become the president of the United States? Because this is a guy who doesn't even believe in the concept, doesn't believe that there is a climate change. So if he's elected, he will have an impact on the whole globe. It will be a, a, a terrible disaster. So I think there's not one answer to it. I think, you know, you have to work in your way. I'm a United States senator. I have to work in a different way. But we all have to work with, a, I hope, a common vision that obviously we've got to transform our energy system, save the planet. Obviously, in a world as wealthy as this world is, children should not be starving to death and that we can create a decent standard of living for all, et cetera, et cetera. Have a vision 
you work in your way, I work in my way as a senator, we work as aggressively as we can. I want to move on a bit to current affairs. In your view, is what Israel is doing in Gaza a genocide? In my view, it is absolutely disgraceful, horrible, and I'm doing as a United States Senator everything I can to end it. And where I'm sitting is, and I don't know how many people know this, every year the United States provides about $3.5 billion in military aid to Israel. On top of that, there is a bill. I was supposed to be here earlier. I was, couldn't come because a bill came up for not just all for Israel, $95 billion, including $14 billion for Israel. And I have led the opposition to that. I do not want to see the United States complicit in what Netanyahu and his right-wing lunatic friends are doing right now to the Palestinian people. So my job right now is to support what the United Nations is trying to do, have a humanitarian ceasefire, see if we can get the humanitarian aid immediately in there, uh, and work out as complex and difficult as it is some type of long-term solution to you know, what's going on there. But do you buy the South African case at the International Court of Justice that what Israel is doing in Gaza constitutes genocide or genocidal acts? I think, look, we can argue about definitions. It is horrible. Right now, 29,000 people have been killed and some 70,000 have been injured. Uh, Some 65% of the housing units have been destroyed or damaged. And I am worried right now, and I I almost wonder why I'm in the UK and not back in the US dealing with this stuff, is that we have hundreds of thousands of children are facing starvation. That's what I have to work on right now. But if one agrees that it is a genocide, it means that other states have a legal right and duty to prevent genocidal acts being carried out. But see, we can talk about that. But what does that mean in real terms? Right now, what I am trying to do is what I think is probably maybe, and I can do it because I'm a senator, you can't. Right now, maybe, maybe, if we tell Mr. Netanyahu that he's not getting a check for $10 billion more to continue his aggressive action, he and his right-wing friends may decide it is not a good idea to continue to do that. So that's, that's where I am coming from. In addition to uh, stopping the billions of dollars in military aid that Israel gets from the United States every year, would you back calls for a cultural, sporting and economic boycott of Israel? I am nervous about economic boycotts of any country, to be honest with you. But right now, what uh, you know, people want to do, they can do what they want to do. But right now, again, my job as a United States senator, and I'm kind of leading that effort in the Senate, is to tell Netanyahu that he is not going to get any more U.S. aid. Did you feel nervous about the boycott movement against apartheid South Africa? Was that a concern you had? at the time? Uh, what I thought that as a, an apartheid state at that point, it was important to put pressure. But people can do as they want. And what, you know, that's all. Do you think that it's right that British citizens and American citizens can go and fight in the IDF when, as you say, there are such profound humanitarian concerns in Gaza? Well, I think if British and American people want to do that, I suppose they have the right to do it. It's not something that I've really thought a whole lot about. Do you think they should have the right? Look, I think what the Israeli government doing now is horrible. And I'm not quite sure why 
people would want to be, you know, part of that effort. Moving on a little bit, tomorrow will be Julian Assange's likely to be his last court date in the UK. He is facing spying charges in the United States. Uh, this could be his last chance to remain here in the UK. Do you think that he should be protected as a whistleblower? I'm a little bit, I don't know a whole lot about it, to be honest with you, but I am a little bit nervous about the Espionage Act being used against him in the United States. Do you think that people have a right to know what their governments are doing abroad? I think so. Yes, I do. And I guess my last question is that it could be a Trump-Biden election. How worried are you about that particular contest? Well, if you believe the polls, and I, I do, right now if the election were held today, it's likely that, that Trump would win. Is there something the Democrats should be doing differently? Yeah, they should be doing a lot differently. And I'm going to do my best to get them to do a lot differently as an independent. Uh, and that is, if you want to win over uh, Trump supporters, you've got to start talking about the needs of working families. You've got to make working people understand that government can actually do good things for them, that we don't have to undermine democracy and blame immigrants for all of our problems. So we need a transformation of the Democratic Party. We need to make it a party of the working class speaking to the needs of the working class. And if we begin that process, I think Biden can win. Senator Sanders, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support.